We begin today with a quote from Carl Truman from his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So Truman, professor at Grove City, writes, Every age has had its darkness and dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. Say, that's exactly right. And if you go press a bit further into what his book is about, and if we look around and get a gauge at any level in our society, say, what is the issue of our time? The issue of our time really is, what is a person? That if you go back to the 16th century, they were having great debates about the mode of baptism, things like that. The great question of our day is, what does it mean to be a person? Or with more clarity, what does it mean to be made male and female? That in a way, it's two competing stories. That I think that's a good way to phrase controversial topics, that we all want to be a part of a big, grand story. And the traditional story, which the Bible tells, is one where we're embedded in our maleness and femaleness. And that narrative is quickly being sidelined for a new narrative. So you can just go back a few years. Tell me about these words. If you would have asked me about these words even 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said, I, that's very strange. But how about this? Pansexuality, non-binary gender gender fluidity, gender reassignment surgery, that these themes have come bursting onto the scene, into the lexicon, not only in zany English departments, but at the popular level. And I think we do well as a church not to create a straw man, I try not to do that, but let's give this second narrative uh, a most charitable reading. And if we can, give that narrative of human sexuality uh, a generous, charitable reading, I think what's happening there is that it's an overcorrection of abuses in the old narrative. That you've got a lot of young people now that look around, they say, you know, we see a lot of abuse, a lot of mistreatment, a lot of cruelty of people who wrestle with same-sex attracted, uh, same-sex attraction, that we see the, the homosexual community has perhaps been held in contempt by pockets of of Christianity, and what they say, well, we gotta get rid of that old narrative about men and women, and we've gotta plug in a new narrative that allows people to follow, uh, you know, follow the way that they're feeling. And so it's within these stories that I think the church does well to say, what time do we live in, and how do we show that our narrative actually is the most loving and the most free framework to understand males and females? And on this, you can kind of start to see how everything begins to uh, fall in the parameter. So, for example, um, public library story hours. Um, this has been such a major headline in the last couple of years, and you think of all things, well, drag queen story hours to small children at public libraries. Now, you know, dressing in drag has been around a very long time. I mean, you could say it goes back to the ancient Greeks. You had men who were same-sex attracted, that they would dress differently. It was, a, it was a fringe movement on the side, nobody barely paying attention to it. And now, all of a sudden, it's sweeping into public library reading hours for young children. What's going on there? Well, there, there's an attempt to collapse the traditional categories of male and female in a hope that there's an opening up to a new vista of freedom and love and acceptance. That's where we find ourselves. And again, the task of the church is to understand our moment and our opportunity and to say, actually, God's design 
lived out according to his framework is the place of the most love and the most freedom. So we begin today, we'll do three, uh, three weeks on this. So today I'm going to look really at some foundational principles in the created order. Next week, how this plays out in the home. And in the third week, how it plays out in the church. But to begin with any biblical anthropology, we start with this grand idea, this fantastic idea that God gave us, and that is that we're all made in his image. Did you catch in the first reading as we have the creation of humans that God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That it's a basic rule of being in a Judeo-Christian framework that men and women are equally in the image of God. That this is what we would call, this notion of all people in God's image is what we call a transcultural universal. You know, you go to different cultures and you say, okay, this culture's been shaped by that and this culture's been shaped by that and may have you know, slightly different rules than we do, but the image of God would be a transcultural universal principle that we would say there's not one person on the face of the earth who lacks the image of God. It's ingrained in them by virtue of being a human being. Now, what is the image of God? There's a lot of things, right? We can talk about functional attributes like, dare I say, moral obligation. Now, I know uh, we all love our pets. I don't have pets, uh, but I you know, see a lot of dogs in my neighborhood. I'm like, do they have moral obligation for the other dogs in the neighborhood? Do they have moral obligation for the dogs outside of their neighborhood? Probably not. You get the idea, right? Linguistic capabilities, um, you know, interest in God, spirituality, that there's things about being human that are far different from the animal kingdom. And if a person's a naturalist, you'll notice that they always are trying to squeeze to eliminate the gap between humans and animals. You know, they say, well, animals take on human characteristics and, and humans become animalistic, and you kind of close that gap. Whereas I think the Bible says God made animals and animals are good, but humans are different. They're made in God's image or the crown of creation, that we have relational connectivity and capacities and the way that we care for one another uh, bears God's image that it wouldn't just be functional attributes, but relational ones. So I hope that it goes without saying, but it's something we, we, we want to talk about uh, in a serious way. And is that any idea of things like racism or sexism from a professing Christian would be a great incongruity. That to say I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and I believe the Bible is, is the, the authority over my life and then to come out and say, well, I think other people are inferior to me or that I should dominate them or demean them would be a, a great misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. So I put a lot of terms in the notes, but anything that looks like oppression or domination or chauvinism or abuse or ha harassment or denigration in any form to another person would be outside of God's created order. You say, may it not be in the church. Again, for me to claim that I'm a Christian and then to think that Mallory is somehow, you know, as Aristotle would have said, you know, somehow an incomplete version of a male and therefore to be kind of pushed around, you'd say, well, this is not a biblical anthropology. Rather, God makes men and women both equally in the image of God with these capacities and capabilities and we're to treat one another as sacred. And you can go back in recent history and how non-Christians kind of plow right through this. 
Uh, you know, was it Margaret Sanger, perhaps, who said something like, you know, women need men like fish need bicycles? In other words, completely indispensable. And all the men in history who have abused their role as leaders and as males, that this, for the Christian, again, should be very clear that it's out of bounds. Males and females made in the image of God as sacred. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to make an apologetic point. I get into some debates on this topic with my non-Christian materialistic friends. And what they say is, well, you know, look at all this stuff, you know, things going on, you know, in the, let's just take it, you know, the kind of Me Too movement of a few years ago, and you've got women being taken advantage of, you know, in the workplace. Austin, aren't you concerned about this? I say, yes, I am concerned about it, but let me ask you a question. Does your worldview of materialism connect with your being upset about that? Because my worldview does. My worldview says every person is made in the image of God, and when there is a, 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 a marring of that image, even if I don't know the person, you should say, the, the world is not right. I long to do something about it. But tell me, if you believe that we've all emerged from the soup, on what reason would you possibly be upset about someone who's being mistreated outside of your gene pool? And it's not, again, that every materialist is a racist or a sexist. I'm not saying that, that that would be a misstatement. They're not. They're actually hyper-concerned about that. My point is, is that the grounding in the image of God is what allows that deep feeling to actually make sense. So even those who would deny the image of God and Genesis 1, I think, feel it deep down. And we, again, the Christians, I think, have the rightful intellectual territory to say, you know what? I am concerned about racism and sexism. And the reason I am is because of this foundational principle of the image of God. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, much quoted line, absolutely correct. He said, you throw God out, all is permissible. You get rid of God, what do I care about people not in my gene pool? Ladies being mistreated downtown Cleveland, I'm not gonna know her. It's got nothing to do with me. Perhaps the fella was just doing what felt good to him. Isn't that the logical corollary of humans by chance? But we're not by chance. We're made in the image of God, and so the Christians can be concerned. Men and women are made in God's image, and again, any oppression, domination, chauvinism, abuse, harassment, denigration, the church says, no, we're not about that. It's different, the image of God. Second point from these foundational readings God made humans dimorphic, male and female, and complementary. You say, when we say dimorphic, it's a fancy term, but what it means is in two shapes. That God makes, again, verse 27, chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There you have it. It, We're a, a dimorphic race, males and females. And immediately after that, God blesses the man and the woman, and he says, I want you to multiply, and I want you to steward my creation. Very interesting. Now, the next things I'm going to say are quite rawly physical, so I'll speak hopefully clearly but cautiously. One should be obvious to us is that God requires a man and a woman to make a baby that in order to fulfill the creation mandate of multiply and fill the earth, that he created, he, he made it, he designed it, so there'd be one man and one lady. That's how you bring new life. 
Now, I actually think you can go down this path and make a completely non-religious argument about preserving that institution, because we should all be concerned about what kind of citizens are coming into the polis, so to speak. Uh, but anyway, in the biology, a man and a woman is what God designed to bring in new life. Second point. The consequences, and by consequence here, I mean the results. The results of any sex act are asymmetrical. That is, the way that men and women experience sex is not identical. What am I talking about? Only one of those genders can carry a child. If you think about it this way, any given man, sure, in some point in history there has been a man, who could sire hundreds of children. I mean, if you, you had enough partners, a man could have hundreds and hundreds of children. Any, any given lady... What do you think? 20 or 25, maybe? Why is that? Because there's an asymmetry in the way that we experience sex. Only one gender can carry a child. Thirdly, and here I'll be careful and try, I know there are children in the room. While women can initiate romance, no doubt about that, women can initiate romance, only a man can initiate intercourse. What am I talking about? The reproductive organs. That if a woman initiates romance, what that amounts to, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to her, from her to, to, to the man. The man, by virtue of his anatomy, is the only one who can really initiate. Hence why rape is unidirectional. So what do you do about this? Wait a second here. God designed us plainly as males and females. He gives us a command to steward the earth that it takes a man and a woman to do that, that the way that that experience goes and how it happens to the man and the woman has an asymmetrical way about it. And only the man can initiate the act and the man tends to be, not always, but tends to be physically stronger. Now, what do we do about this? Now, God gave a framework for it. He said there are options, the way that I've designed you, option number one is long-term faithful marriage. That the way that this works out in God's good design is to say the man and the woman's to come together, the man's to take responsibility for, for the children that he sires, that he's to care for his wife, he's never to abuse his physical strength over her, he would never abuse the fact that only he can initiate. And in that long-term marriage, you have male restraint. And males leading and protecting their families. Or another option that God gives on this design is faithful friendship that we heard about last week. Non-sexual friendship. Like a church family where I hope that we would view every person in our church really as our brother or our sister. God says, this is the design. I, I've set it up. It's ingrained in creation. This is what it is. And here's the path. These are the railroad tracks that I put it on. But what is the second, the, the, the second narrative that I talked about? What does the second narrative do about this? They say, well, we've got to do something about the asymmetrical, the asymmetry of, of sex. And we do this by means of technology. 
the last 50 or so years. Now, the problem with that is to say, okay, we want men and women to experience sex the same way. Let's try to eliminate the consequences. There's at least three problems with the road that we're on. See if you agree. Firstly, when someone says, I want men and women to experience sex the same way, that the problem to be solved is female fertility. That the real issue, the real problem as to why we can't all enjoy sex on our own is that, that women can have babies. And it should be deeply alarming to, to us in that that narrative, in claiming to be good for women, turns their own biology against them. Even though God designed you in such a way where you can have the openness to having children, that he designed you that way, that's something that we've got to cut out of the scene, and, and that's a problem to be solved, and so the problem's within yourself. And I think this is why, and I want to be careful here, when pastors talk about books, it doesn't mean everybody should go out and buy these books. No, these, these, as far as I know, these authors are not Christians. I myself read book reviews, but very interesting, female intellectuals listen to these book titles. Feminism Against Progress. Uh, Mary Harrington, Louise Perry, The Case Against Feminism. Christine Emba, Rethinking Sex. Abigail Favale, she is a Christian. The Genesis of Gender. All four of these ladies in recent times have said, you know what, this narrative is not good for women. That in trying to pretend that, that men and women experience sex the same way and the consequences are the same and that we can treat it with technology and medicine makes female fertility the problem. And that turns the female body against itself. It's not an act of love. And I ask you that. You say here today, these are big topics, serious things. Which, do you, which is the more loving story to you? God made you. He made your body. He didn't make a, he didn't make a mistake. He's given you parameters to use that body unto his glory. There's no mistake about it. And God will provide for you and, 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 and use your life to his honor all the days of your life. Or is it you know, try to fix yourself because that's where real pleasure, real pleasure is you, you got to fix and just hope that it doesn't happen. Say, no, that's not loving. I mean, to, to tell someone, uh, to speak to someone against their own nature, I would submit to you is not a loving thing, but a cruel thing. To say there's a mistake. Second problem, just follows from what we've been saying. Second problem with trying to cure men and women coming together is the increase of male promiscuity. So back in April of this year, to take one example, the Atlantic, another lady, Nikki Otis Smith, wrote an article called Are We Decent Yet? And she, this one hit home for me because this is my generation, but in the early 2000s, she said all, there's just a flow of films that featured male hedonism and treated women, quote, as disposable outside of their sexual potential. And she goes on to say, the men in all those films are, quote, man-children. I say, that's exactly right. If you say, hey, there's no, no you know, nothing restraining male promiscuity. We said, well, there's nothing unique about being a male. There's no such thing as being a male uh, leader under the authority of God. That concept's old-fashioned. Well, guess what's happened? Male promiscuity has increased. And uh, what's happening with young males is a complete mess. Again, not a victory for women. And third problem, and this one, is very sad. Nature always comes back. For example, recently, again, just taking a very recent example, there was a bike race in New Mexico, and uh, a chap 
male by the name of Austin Killips um, at some point decided to identify as a female. He is an entrance into the female cycling competition, of course, wins by a long shot. And the women say, well, how, you know, what gives here? I mean, what, women's sports might as well not exist. Now, the United Cycling Federation comes back and says, interestingly, say we're no longer going to permit men who've gone through, people who've gone through male puberty to compete in female sports. Now, that's an interesting line. In other words, are they saying if we start the process before puberty, then then that make it okay? But interestingly, they said we don't have any problem with women participating in men's sports. Say, it sounds a lot to me like asymmetry, that nature comes back. Very sad when you hear of this new, again, another new label for us, but what is meant by detransitioners? The detransitioners tend to be women in their 20s who back as early teenagers told some guidance counselor that they were having trouble, that they felt a bit depressed and a bit anxious, and they thought the solution to that was to become a man, that they went through treatments, got double mastectomies, have been rendered infertile by injections, and have come out now in their mid to late 20s and saying, you know what, that was not the source of my problem, and now what I have is a mutilated body. A large group of people who are now having the courage to write about it. What an opportunity for the church. Who's there for those girls? Who says there's always been a better narrative? The narrative of, of God affirming males and females in our bodies say that's the rightful turf of the church. So friends, men and women are made in God's image. Humans are dimorphic, male and female, and complementary, that we're made in such a way where we're to come together and work together. And that's what you have, again, more on this next week. But at the end of the second reading, you'll know as the man and the woman come together, verse 25 of chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, what does that not ashamed mean? It means that there's complete trust, that there's unity in the relationship, that they're doing as God designed them to do. There's a real partnership, we could say, that even in these differences, these God-made differences, that there's love and trust and unity. And so the third point, which I'll be brief on, is that when Adam and Eve fall, when they rebel against God, one of the, you could say, yes, a fractured relationship with God, but what's then the first relationship that has a breakdown? The man and the woman. Very interesting that Satan goes to Eve, even though Adam is there, and he was the one charged to look after things. And the first thing that God does after they fall is he comes to Adam because Adam's responsible. As the leader of his household, Adam is responsible. He comes to Adam and, and says, how did you do this? And do you remember what he says? He said, my wife did it. Immediate pressure on the man and the woman relationship. God says, I want you to work together. I've made you differently. I've put you on a path. Both of you are to, to work together to subdue and exercise dominion, that there's trust and unity. The fall happens, and there's pressure on men and women. And verse 16 of chapter 3, which again is a, a, a verse that we must take some time to unpack, but you'll see in this punishment to Eve that she's going to have pain in childbearing, but also this line, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
In other words, to speak in a broad principle, all of a sudden, this relationship where the man was to lovingly, sacrificially lead and the, the wife was to support him, well, guess what's going to happen now? He's going to have a tendency to be patriarchal and dominate her, and she's going to have a tendency to usurp his authority, and the, the, the relationship will quickly turn to mush. So the relationship between the men and the women suffers great, great damage at the fall. And this, again, is why you'll hear people and to say where we find ourselves is talking all kinds of cruelties, saying all kinds of uh, things, men against women, women against men, not a part of God's design. And so, friends, again, I know my time is short, and we will continue on this for three weeks, but I, I would be remiss to not end on a Christological note, and it's this, that Christ, of course, redeems men and women that Jesus goes out of his way to minister to women even against his own cultural time, that the marital union, insofar as it's hard for all of us because of the fall, that as we look unto Jesus, that that is our hope to be reunited. You know, I'm sure there are couples in this room, you say, you know, we were in a pretty bad spot. That I just felt that my husband was aloof, he wasn't sacrificially leading, and he would say, well, she just, you know, bosses me around, and you know what, but we found Jesus. And Jesus entered into our relationship and ordered us under his authority. And in so doing, that we've not only been converted, but our marriage has been made better. And I pray that that hope is before any couple here today, that that, that promise is out there, that as we come to Jesus, that we can be made whole. And of course, these themes, I think, extend beyond even marriage to say well what does it mean to be a man does it does my sacrificial leadership count outside of the marital relationship and my what role as a woman and my instincts does that count for anything outside of the marital union absolutely it does and so in that we celebrate we look unto jesus we thank him for the redemption and all these issues and as i pray may the men uh, who serve communion if they would come down front I'll pray, and, and again, we'll, we'll go forward with this theme in weeks to come. Loving Father, thank you for the great promise of being made in the image of God. Well, the truth that we're made in the image of God, what this means for every person here, for all of our relationships. Help us to see in a time where we're told that we're maybe the unloving bunch, that actually this principle is what allows love to really expand. It's, it's the foundation for the love that we would show towards all people, all of our fellow humans. May the church be the place where we say, no, we, we actually do stand up uh, against harassment and maltreatment of all kinds. And Father, I pray that in a time where the narrative is running so cultural about do whatever feels good, that we would um, in, embrace the idea that we're made male and female, that you've made us with a kind of asymmetry, that that's not something to be cured, but rather to be lived out within your plan. And that as we would do this winsomely for your sake, that others would, would see you through it and come to a, fa a saving faith in Christ. So we surrender this to you. Help us as we think through it the month of September. In Jesus' name, amen.